Welcome to the Cultured Broad Podcast, where we like to pretend that we're more sophisticated than we really are. I'm your hostess, Rasha Shaker. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Cultured Broad Podcast. I'm your hostess, Rasha Shaker, and I have with me today Alice Combs, the lady with balls. How are you today? I'm fine, Rasha. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing good. So, you know, I have to start this off by asking you, why the name and how did you come up with it? Okay. The name happened because the garbage men called me the lady with balls. And why did the garbage men call me the lady with balls? It's because I burst into one of my customers' board meetings demanding a $5,000 payment, which was overdue. And... It was humiliating for the board president that I was actually audacious enough to do such a thing. And I ended up being carried out of the room and dropped down the stairs. Well, I wasn't hurt. And I tried to slam the pneumatic door and said, see you in court. After that, I thought I would be called the bitch of the industry. However, it didn't ruin me. It enhanced my career because word got around, and this was a very unpopular man, known for trying to take advantage of people, and I had stood up to him, and very few people had the nerve to stand up to him. So I earned the reputation of having the lady with balls. I love that. Oh, my gosh. I love that story. And (laughs) it's amazing how... In this day and age, like, there's sort of like a reclamation with words that are negative toward women, bitch, or, uh, in, you know, the name of my, my blog is Cultured Broad. Um, so, I mean, obviously, this was in a different, um, a different time. Can you tell me more about the way women were treated in the 70s and the 80s? Sure. I did have some sexual harassment, but before that... I'll say I wasn't taken seriously. Part of it was my fault. I dressed like a secretary and I was trying to act like a professional salesperson. Eventually I learned how to dress better. But before I learned how to dress better, a confidence came over me. And it took a while. I was lacking in confidence. So when I was dressed improperly and I had no confidence, I was sometimes shooed out of a place once I was in once the man who shooed me out insisted that he didn't want any Avon products so they couldn't believe that I would be doing something in a male industry and eventually when I became more learned with my product more confident dressed well I no longer had that problem Now, as far as the sexual harassment, yes, I had some. And probably I didn't consider some of that sexual harassment during the 70s and the 80s because now women, men can't get away with anything anymore. Or they're, you know, the Me Too movement is really eroding this power that men have had over women. So I would say the funniest sexual harassment I had, and none was... A nightmare for me. It was humorous. Fortunately, I can take it that way. Was when 
I was at a convention, a garbage convention. I became an honorary garbage woman because of my having interrupted that board meeting because a lot of garbage men who didn't meet me wanted to meet me and I became, um, I had a lot more customers, a lot of those garbage men. So I was invited to this garbage men's convention and the president of the convention sought me out and wanted to give me a big sloppy kiss. We had alcohol breath, it smelled awful, he was a creepy man, and I yelled, stop that! And would you believe another man yelled out, you should be proud, he's president of blah, 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 garbage company. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> the one in LA. <laughs> he wasn't proud. <laughs> but that was the, that was the atmosphere of uh, the late 70s, and in fact, it was in 1978 that this happened. Jeez. So I had other other situations. One was almost as funny when another garbage man tried to kiss me behind a baler, and the atmosphere was of dirty boxes and and filth and bad smells. And I just thought, oh, this is the most unromantic place anyone has ever tried to kiss me. And I I really laughed when the whole thing was over. I laughed about it, but immediately after, I just looked at him. And then I started jabbering on as if nothing had happened. And he played the game and we shook hands. He walked me to my car. We shook hands and I drove away. And once I knew nobody could see me, I started laughing my head off. Wow. Jeez. <laughs> um, I, I don't know how I'd be able to <laughs> tolerate living in that, in that particular time. That's just awful. So where did you learn to... Where did you learn to get your balls? Like, where did you learn to become so um, brave and in sticking up for yourself? I wouldn't say I learned it. I had two children, so I had three mouths to feed, theirs and mine. And when that person owed me the $5,000, I believe an animal instinct of a mother cub trying, of a mother bear trying to protect her cubs. Because if I didn't get that $5,000, which would be $20,000, if you correct it for inflation, I would not have been able to feed them in as healthy a manner as I had been doing. And I, I just, in a sense, lost my temper. Like, how dare you not pay me the $5,000? Because when I demanded it, I said, you promised that you would give me that $5,000. And he says, that was then, and now is now. And now we don't have it. <laughs> wow. And at that point, I threw my briefcase at him. And I said, I want my money now. <laughs> and anyway, I ended up being dropped down the stairs for disrupting. Wow. Jeez. I, I have no words for that. Like, I can't, I can't even fathom any, anything like that, like, occurring today it's wow <laughs> i'm just blown away like that's just that's just shocking to me that that was really how women were treated back then and then um it makes me think of stories of when my mom grew up working that she faced the same kind of like sexual harassment i remember telling me one story uh, it was really disgusting too um so time Kind of tell me more about like the industry that you worked in and you know why it 
it seemed so toxic. And was that really the case for other industries back in that time? Well, probably when I look back at the sexual harassment that I've had, it was disproportionately high with garbage men, owners of garbage companies, not the, you know, they had hauled the garbage. They were Italians. And that industry is no longer run by Italians so much because they've been bought out by larger industries, Browning Fair, um, oh, I can't think of all the names, but they've been bought out by larger industries. And there's a political reason behind this, which I won't go into unless you want to hear that. It's not that germane to my book. But I also had sexual harassment from non-garbage industries because my markets were the recycling market and also a lot of box board industries. I had it from that and other industries like even IBM. I didn't have any sexual harassment from IBM, but a lot of companies needed industrial baler wire, which is my product. And as far as the people I bought the industrial baler wire, I don't believe I had any sexual harassment from the vendors but the vendors would want to impress me. So whereas if someone was my customer, I had to impress them, you know? So I guess that's why I never once had any sexual harassment from the, from the companies I bought my wire from. Got it. So you mentioned company and the there. Kind of tell me more about that and what was it like running your own company back then as a woman? As a woman, well, something pivotal happened. I, at first, when I was trying to get a, a wire a wire vendor, not a customer, a wire vendor to sell to me and give me credit, I felt he wouldn't take me seriously without a man by my side. Well, I had a boyfriend. And so we played the game that the boyfriend was my boss, but he wasn't really my boss. You might say in a sense he was my partner, but not my boss. And so we treated it like I was the assistant. Well, eventually this boyfriend, I didn't want him in my life anymore for quite a few reasons. And I was terrified that the wire company would no longer want to deal with me but I felt I had to let them know that he wasn't in the picture anymore. I was very nervous. I suggested that we all meet for breakfast. And I told them I would rather not talk about what I wanted the meeting for. But I would tell them at breakfast. Well, at breakfast, I had three people at the table waiting for me. I thought there would only be one or two, but there were three and I was very nervous. I know my hands were cold and clammy, which I had gotten over most occasions, except for this one, they were cold and clammy all over again. And I thought, bad start, but kind of feel my cold, clammy hand. When I finally told them the news, I was delighted. They said, or one of them said, we always thought you were sharper than him anyway. We're happy to deal with you. And that gave me a lot of confidence, a lot. So that happened, that happened before I was dropped down the stairs. So I was gaining and gaining and gaining, but 
I really said so little confidence that in the beginning I would write out a script. Hi, my name is Alice Combs from Vulcan. How are you? And what is your name? I, I would write this down, which is really stupid, but it wasn't stupid for me. It gave me confidence to write it down and have my spiel. And eventually that became a ridiculous exercise. Yeah. yeah. I also gained confidence after I went to a John Malloy lecture, and you probably don't know who John Malloy is, right? No. <laughs> okay. He was famous in my day, in the actually even before my day. I would say he was famous in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, maybe even the 90s, but I'm not sure of that, for writing books, Dress for Success. And his first book and his first lectures were for men only. And then he did a lot of the books and the lectures for women who were trying to break into the male industry. And at that time, in order to look serious, we sort of wore mannish clothes. We were supposed to disguise our curves. And if um, we were supposed to have fairly high necklines and not to wear any ruffles and wear serious colors and sort of dress like a man but with a woman's suit. And we were not supposed to wear pants. Those were out. We had to wear skirts and non-form-fitting jackets. So once I started doing that, I looked in the mirror and I thought, oh, I do look so professional. So that plus when I finally had, when I was finally able to stop worrying about profits and begin to worry about taxes, and therefore incorporating, I felt I had made it. And I guess my confidence was at its peak at the point I incorporated, which is shortly after I learned, actually it was before I learned how to dress right. So I guess dressing right and looking in the mirror made me feel confident, but managed. And if you want to know the full story behind that, which is in my book, I'll just tell you. I learned how to feel feminine by wearing sexy underwear. <laughs> Goodness for that, right? <laughs> so tell me more about the book and what, what are some things that uh, readers can take out of it? Well, different people can take out different things. But young women, I would say women from ages 18 to probably 50, would learn how to be an entrepreneur in many ways. It's not a how-to book at all because it's only 13 pages of my book it is telling how to run a business and it's called Seven Basic Business Lessons. Other than that, the rest of this 300 page book, except for these 13 pages, consists more of mistakes that I made than things I did right. And how I overcame the mistakes and picked myself up very quickly and never made the same mistake again. So it's basically telling people in an indirect fashion, if they, if they feel like they're seeing business through my eyes and they are vicariously experiencing what I experienced, they'll learn some lessons that of how not to do things and how to do them right. 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 
in the situation you were in, where did you find the means to start up your business? Where did I find the money for the startup? Yeah. Well, I was on food stamps, a single mother. I have a college debt that would be due in a year. I just graduated from college with a political science degree that didn't get me any real money. And two children. I have owned a home, could barely afford the payments, barely. And I would lose alimony a year after I graduated. So I was still collecting a, a very piddly, piddly amount of alimony. My ex-husband did not make a whole lot of money, but enough to pay child support and alimony in a very, my, um, very small scale. So I was pretty terrified of how am I going to get money? Well, I really wanted to go into the wire business because I saw dollar signs. So I did something that I felt very guilty about. I committed a felony because I tampered with a W-2 form, which were easy to find. And this is before the age of computers. So I guess there were computers in the military, but businesses, even big businesses, didn't have computers in those days. I wrote that I made $40,000 a year which in today's dollars would be maybe 180 or yep, a very nice income, comfortable. And so nobody found out that that was a lie. And I, I shouldn't say nobody, I should say Crocker Bank didn't. And I filled out a Crocker Bank form. I gave them this fake uh, W-2. My boyfriend was... Um, they called my boyfriend who said that I had worked for him and I was such a good, wonderful employee. <laughs> and the whole sham worked and I have never done anything dishonest since with my business. I felt this was my one chance and I was never going to do anything like that again. And I was so pleased the next time I tried to get credit, which was for wall-to-wall carpeting from Sears, and I told the whole truth, nothing but the truth, gave the honest-to-God W-2 form and... I got the carpeting. So oh. how I got my money and I mortgaged the house, a second mortgage with Crocker Bank, and they were never one minute late. I mean, their payments were never even a minute late. Wow. And I was never caught. And hopefully the IRS won't come after me with the publication of my book and explaining this on these podcasts and interviews that I do. Wow, I hope so too, because it really changed the outcome of your of your life. You know, <laughs> that would really stink to have the IRS at your door for sure. Um, so when you're when you were running this business and managing with these vendors and stuff like that, um, what were what were some of the mistakes that you've made early on in your business? Okay, early on. I did not even know that most people in my industry or the industry I sold to, which was not a garbage company, it was a paper manufacturing company. They manufactured box for them. And when I thought that I would get paid immediately, I was horrified because I didn't even have the money for the product. I had kited a check. And kiting means you write a check for which you have no funds. And my plan was I would get a check from them, deposit it in the bank, and lo and behold, by the time my check to the, per the company I bought the wire from would clear, that everything would be fine. Well, 
I found out they didn't plan to pay me for 30 days. Oh, wow. I was horrified. And I said, well, I'll have to take the wire back thinking, I wonder whether I'll even get my money back from the vendor for which I'd made this fake check or not fake, a real check that would have bounced. And then he spent over 45 minutes trying to call his headquarters. It was Owens, Illinois. You know, that's a big company. So it was one place in Union City in California. He had to call the headquarters, wherever that was at the time, and get permission from the headquarters to have a check cut so he could get what he really needed, which was this wire. That was the first mistake. The second mistake was the wire broke. <laughs> it wasn't any good. So I didn't realize that there were different qualities of wire, and I hadn't bought the right quality, the wire with the right qualities. So then I learned that I'd better understand my product a lot better than I had understood it. I could go on and on with mistakes, but those were the first two I ever made. Okay. So what exactly is Baylor wire? Baylor wire. Well, here's a picture of it right here. And this is me. And behind me is the product. And these are the wires. So Baylor wire has a loop and the, what this wire is, not all of the wire we sell, but what this wire is, they, there is a loop and they take the unloop end and put it through the loop and twist it and then it will hold a bale. So a lot, I would say th this product here, which is we call bale ties, is sold to a lot of supermarkets, Costco's, and Trader Joe's, you name it, where they get lots of boxes in. And then they have to have them recycled. So this wire is used for recycling products. Oh, okay. So it's the stuff that went, because I used to work in, I used to work at Kmart. It's the, it's essentially the stuff that holds all the, the items together. Is that, am I... Boxes together. Do you remember that there was a baler in the back of your Kmart? Yes. Okay. And you remember that people, maybe even you, had to put some boxes in that baler? Yes. Did you ever put the wire in there? I honestly don't remember putting the wire in there. Okay. You probably didn't if you don't remember it. But there are usually three to five slots in the back of these, like your Kmart. And so the person uh, who is operating this small baler, when it gets full enough, he'll, he or she will stick the wire through the slots, and then the slots go around. And the wire goes around into this rectangular area and comes back. Then they take what came back, the, the sharp point, because they put the, sharp, the unlooped point in. Then they stick that wire through the loop loosely. Well, when the it, it can be very loose. But what they've done is, in that baler, they have crushed the boxes together. Then they lift up the, the plate that crushes the box together, and the bale is pushed out. And as it's pushed out, the boxes, which are corrugated, get their air back, and they expand, and then the the bale is very tightly secured with the wire. Got it. Okay. Yeah, that makes, feminine, that makes sense. Not a feminine product. 
not a feminine product, but very functional. <laughs> so did you have a mentor in running your business? Where did you get your, your wisdom from um, as you went through your career? Well, the mentor was my boyfriend. And he said, because I never, I, I didn't grow up saying, hi, how are you? What's your name? I, I might have asked people what their name was. I never said, hi, how are you? which is sort of standard. So he taught me that. And he, he taught me a few other things. He wasn't honest. Of course, I did something dishonest too. He did give me the idea of the fake W-2 form. But I did outgrow him because he had convinced me he had a very successful business. I, I, I said he did outgrow me. I outgrew him, excuse me. He said he'd had a successful business. I discovered some tax forms and I discovered he had never had a successful business. I was thinking I would help him pump it up, but I tried a few items with him which didn't work, which is in the story. And those are stories in themselves. And finally, I, we lived together and I didn't like the way he was treating one of my daughters. He was being very mean to her and I told him he had to go. and. He went, so that, so what did he teach me? He taught me just the rudiments of greeting people and when you get the sale, thank people, don't go on and on. So he told me those two things and he also gave me the idea of find out what people need and they can't get. But he did not take, teach me, I should think of waste factors. He didn't teach me about the COD, no CODs. He didn't teach me a lot of other things that I learned through trial and error. He certainly didn't teach me that I should know my product and I should get a better wire than I had my with my first sale. Neat. Um, so what is one thing you want to tell young entrepreneurial women out there um, as far as them finding their own business or whatever their pursuits are in their careers. What, what would be one piece of advice you can give them? Well, the biggest advice coming from me is find a need and fill it. And by that, you could take it as a loose term or a tight term. In a loose term, you could say, find a need for doing podcasts like you're doing. So other people are doing podcasts but you are unique. You've got a very catchy phrase of um, cultured, cultured broad. Yeah. Which sounds like it doesn't go together, which makes people really think. And in a sense, you know, I have the lady with balls, which doesn't necessarily go together. So I think catchy phrases help. So you are doing your segments and other people doing podcasts are doing different segments. So you found your niche. So in other words, you can do something that is already being done, but you want to have something different and a different niche than someone else, you know? So I hear advertisements for socks. I hear advertisements for underwear. Well, people have been buying socks and underwear forever, but supposedly what I'm hearing on the radio about these socks and this, this kind of underwear, there's something unique about it. So when I say find a need for a product, 
I guess the socks, extra cushy, the underwear, extra comfortable. You know, it doesn't mean you have to sell something that never existed, but do find a need. Find a need, that's great advice. So your book, it's out now, right? Yes, it's been out since last July. Awesome, and where can people find your book? They can find it, well, number one, I love my store, my local bookstore, because I'm a part owner, The Four-Eyed Frog. They can also find it on the internet, and we're competing with, and it's, it's not easy, but they can find it on Amazon. And my book is in paperback form, it's in audible form, and it can be e-reader, Kindle, any form that people like to listen or read. They can get discs, they can get it all over the internet, the story, read by me, by the way. So it can be purchased at other bookstores, too, Barnes & Noble, you name it. They can go anywhere and buy it. So it's, it's everywhere. I think so. I think, yeah, independent bookstores and, and uh, chains, they, you know, you can buy it just about wherever you want. That's great. Well, we're, we're going to have to wrap up right now, but it was such a pleasure to, to speak with you, Alice. And um, I'm looking forward to picking up the copy and reading it for myself. And if, <laughs> you were such a delight to speak to. And, uh, you know, when I first saw yourself uh with the name lady with balls is like oh i just have to talk to her but she has a lot of stories to tell yeah i have 300 pages of story to tell and only 13 pages are telling you how to do things in business <laughs> the rest is just all sorts of stories including how i met my husband and some sexual harassment stories and some another story about how i had a brush with the mafia so oh, wow some colorful experiences colorful experiences i love it well thank you so much alice thank you rasha this has been the cultured broad podcast make sure to follow us on social media and be sure to subscribe to our newsletter by going to culturedbroad.com until next time 